0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff, Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there, how are you? Um, It's Lisa Bonus, calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 15th. Today, how genetic science helped expose a secret coronavirus outbreak, and what happens when a campaign challenges votes.
1: Magdalena Toch-Garcia is 36, a mother of three, and a worker at the AgriStar Meat and Poultry plant in Postville, Iowa. Back in March, when the first coronavirus cases were being diagnosed and reported in the U.S., she became really scared about the virus affecting her. There had been cases in her town in the northeast of Iowa and she wanted to protect herself and her children. Y yo estaba preocupada
2: porque yo tengo a mis tres hijas. Yo tenía miedo de de contagiarme y venir and ca, a casa
1: y y a ellas también. She started thinking about, you know, how do I protect myself from the meatpacking plant space? And she had asked for a mask from the laundry facility and was told that she couldn't have one, that only people who were sick were going to get
2: masks. Hmm. And
1: she couldn't stay home from work because you know, like many American workers, about a quarter of all American workers, she doesn't have paid sick
2: leave. So
1: instead, she wound up taking showers and drinking hot tea with lemon as kind of like her only protection against this, like, really scary, encroaching
2: disease. and
1: I'm Sarah Kaplan. I'm a reporter at The Washington Post. All through the end of March and the beginning of April, there were more and more cases popping up in Allamakee County, which is where Postville is and where the Agristar plant is. And at the same time, more and more of Magdalena's coworkers were starting to fall ill. And ultimately, both Magdalena and her husband came down with symptoms. They started feeling fatigue and their limbs were heavy and they were having trouble breathing. And they kept going to work because they don't have sick leave. And um, they both got tested. And two days later, the results came back and they were both positive.
0: As all of this was going on, what was the official word that she was hearing either from the managers of this meatpacking plant or from local officials about what was actually going on with this outbreak?
1: When you ask people now what was being said at the time, you get a lot of different answers depending on who you're talking to. I mean, Magdalena and several of her colleagues who we spoke with said that no one ever told them that there were known cases within the plant. No one contacted them to say you might have been in contact with someone who's infected, like you should get tested or monitor yourself for symptoms. They basically said that they were told if you're sick, stay home. And that was pretty much it. Officials from the plant say that they did attempt to do contact tracing, that they kept their own informal tally whenever a worker called them to say that they had been diagnosed or were staying home sick. And that they would give that information to managers who were then asked to get in touch with, you know, the potential contacts of someone who had fallen ill. But, you know, at least from in Magdalena's case and in the case of five other workers we talked to, that doesn't appear to have happened. Meanwhile, on the state level, both people, just regular people living in the town and actually plant officials themselves said that they got no help from the state. You know, the woman who was responsible for maintaining the plant's own list of cases said that it was really hard to find out like if the state knew whether their workers were sick and that there was just not a lot of guidance on how to monitor this, how to respond to it, how to act safely and in fact, you know, guidance for meatpacking plants on how to respond to the coronavirus outbreak didn't come out until the end of April, almost a month after, you know, the country shut down and and a long time after it became clear that meatpacking plants were a major nexus of spread.
0: So given all of this denial or at least lack of public information about where it was spreading, how it was spreading, to whom it was spreading how do we know all of this? And and how do we know that this outbreak came from this meatpacking plant?
1: So we know because of some clues that were um, left behind by the virus itself and this kind of scientist-turned disease detective, Piraeut Kenny, who went looking for those clues. Dr. Kenny is actually a cancer scientist at the Gunderson Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So
2: I moved here in 2015 to become the director of the cancer research labs, and you know that's been a really exciting experience. We've and been, you
1: know, until March, his research, research was all on tumor Alaska. genomes.
2: And it's you know it's kind of small town science in some way, but some of the work we we can do is quite impactful. You know we we do and interpret tumor genome sequencing for many of the, the complex cancer cases in Wisconsin, and try to recommend do individualized therapies for those people, whether that's on clinical trial or or off trial.
1: But as this wave of coronavirus cases was kind of crashing down in Wisconsin and all across the U.S., his lab actually had to shut down. And so he had this genome sequencing equipment and he was kind of thinking to himself, like, what can I do with this to help? Because my community is is in danger. And that's how he came upon genomic epidemiology. And he wound up Ordering the tests that he needed to sequence virus genomes instead of human cell genomes, he got permission from the institutional review board at his health system to start testing and sequencing the samples from patients who came in with COVID nineteen.
2: People are pretty complicated. We have three billion letters of, of yeah. um, you know, <laughs> DNA in our genome. and this, this you know little virus, as troublesome as it is, has a little under thirty thousand. So. From a computational and technical point of view, it's probably a lot less challenging in many ways than than what we're trying to do with, with our cancer patients. So we were able to leverage our existing resources.
1: Gunderson serves both Wisconsin and Iowa, as well as Minnesota. And so he started getting patients from Postville. And when he looked at the genomes of the virus samples from those patients, he saw that they were all connected by a bunch of mutations that were the same. And so what did what did that mean? What is the significance of that? I mean, so basically you can think about a mutation as like a genetic barcode, right? It's kind of like a, a signifier for a particular strain of the virus. And all viruses mutate. Um, the coronavirus mutates probably every few infections or every couple of weeks. It's, it's
2: an amazing evolutionary machine dedicated mm-hmm. to making more copies of itself. And it's sadly very, very efficient at doing that.
1: But once a mutation is introduced into the genome, it kind of stays there as it continues to spread from person to person. And that means that you can use these mutations to sort of reconstruct the family tree of the virus, the history of it. So if I were to get the virus and pass it along to you, most likely The strains of virus that we have would be almost identical, if not super similar. And that's a way of knowing okay, these cases are probably connected. That's what Dr. Kenny did. He started taking the samples of virus collected from patients that came into the Gunderson clinics, and he sequenced their genomes, and he found that there were these three distinctive mutations that are not found in combination anywhere else in the world that were associated with people who either worked at the Agristar plant or lived with someone who worked there. In the first two weeks, he found 16 cases, almost all of them connected with Agristar in some way. And then eventually he started finding these same three signature mutations, this particular strain associated with Postville and the plant, not just in Alamakee County and not just in Iowa, but actually in 15 different cities across three different states. And so once he
0: found that out, what did he do with all of that information?
1: So to Dr. Kenny. What that signified was a really explosive outbreak, um, a single introduction of the virus that in the conditions of the meatpacking plant was able to kind of explode in cases and that those cases, you know, once you have this big explosion, it's difficult to contain. Right. So it gets outside of Postville, it gets outside of alamakee County and spreads all around the area. And we know that this is how the coronavirus behaves, right? There's been a ton of research on the role of super-spreading events and super-spreading circumstances in contributing to you know, escalating numbers of cases. And so Dr. Kenny wrote a paper, You know, he did the scientific analysis, and he actually gave it to public health officials, this sort of coalition of health officials from the surrounding area that included health officials from Allamakee County. But those Allamakee County officials, as far as he knows, they never did anything with his information.
0: Even though this was this was cutting-edge science and that he was basically giving them really important details about how this was spreading in this community, where it was coming from, it, it seems like that would have been actionable information.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that this sort of raises one of the many difficulties that America's had in responding to the pandemic is that health systems are not very well resourced, right? And Alamakee County especially. So, they only have two people working for their county health department. We were not able to get in touch with these health officials and I can't say what was going through their heads or why they did not respond. But you're right that this is cutting-edge science, right? And it needs to be explained. And I can imagine two people being pretty overwhelmed by the number of cases they were dealing with and that maybe that this didn't stand out to them or they didn't know how to interpret it. And I guess the other thing I would say is that the, the officials in Alamakee County, like they are by no means unique in that they are not taking advantage of this really cutting-edge tool. Genomic epidemiology, which is the term for this kind of science, Um, has only really emerged in the past few years because the technology, the machines needed to sequence genomes have become much more affordable. And so they're a lot more widespread at universities, at research centers and things. And there are places around the world where genomic epidemiology is really being used to track outbreaks in real time, but that is mostly not happening in the United States, even though there is sequencing happening in the U.S. And there are lots of scientists like Dr. Kenny who have kind of taken it upon themselves to do this. You know, the connection with health departments, which are largely under-resourced and understaffed, and the connection with public authorities has really not happened yet.
2: I think that comes down to really sort of political leadership at the, the state and county level in trying to really emphasize and try to communicate to people what's important. And in addition, taking measures such as closing gathering places like, you know, churches and bars and restaurants and, you know, any places where, where people can congregate depending on the disease burden. But it's, it's really tough in situations where people in, you know, may not be very educated and, you know, are not getting solid persuasive guidance in, in, a, in a manner that's easily
0: understood. And so then in the meantime... As this doctor was doing all of this research and finding out these pretty significant findings, um, what was the plant doing for its workers?
1: So, you know, the plant's response to the virus was evolving. Magdalena says she was initially denied a face mask to protect herself. But the plant says that after April 3rd, which is when the CDC put out guidance calling on Americans to use masks, regardless of whether or not you're sick, Um, they started implementing that as well and distributing masks. They also say that they put up posters giving guidance on, you know, hand washing and social distancing and things that they spaced workers out along the factory floor to be distant from one another and that they were doing, you know, basically they say they were doing the best with the information that they had to try to keep people safe but there was not a lot of information. And, and like I mentioned earlier, there was not a lot of guidance. And the federal guidance and state guidance for meatpacking plants came quite a while after these cases were spiking in Postville. So at this point, how many cases
0: do we know were linked to this plant?
1: So from Dr. Kenny's research, he found 27 cases of the particular Postville substrain, And to him, that indicated an outbreak. And if you know that there are 27 cases that have been sequenced, there are probably, you know, an order of magnitude more cases that haven't been.
2: I always knew that the genomic surveillance we were doing was likely only to be catching the tip of the iceberg. There's many places in addition to Gunderson, that these people can be tested. I'm sure many of them may have been asymptomatic, perhaps, and not, need, not, not gone for a test. Testing might not have been widely available in that particular era. So there's, I think, many reasons why when you see as large a number of cases as ours, the assumption should be that there's a whole lot more behind the, the curtains that are on scene.
1: And then ultimately, the plant did request testing help from the state of Iowa And at that point, it was about a month after the first cases, and it took another two weeks before Iowa came and actually conducted the strike force testing event, where they gave PCR tests, which are used to diagnose the virus, and antibody tests, which show whether or not someone has had the virus in the past, to find out about current and past infections. And that revealed that um, there were about a dozen current infections, but there were at least a 100 and potentially as many as 150 past infections. And this is a plant of 575 workers. They tested 463. So that's a really big fraction. It's at least 20%, probably more. And even in Iowa, where state officials have really high bar for reporting an outbreak, they only consider a workplace to have an outbreak if 10% of workers are diagnosed This clearly meets that threshold, but Iowa has never reported the results of this testing event, and they have never identified Agristar as having an outbreak. And they told us when we requested that testing information that they only would disclose outbreaks that were identified by active infection, so positive PCR tests. So, I mean, in in essence, because it took so long to get testing and more than seven weeks after the first cases emerged... Peak of the outbreak had already passed, and what they were detecting was past infections instead of current infections. And so because of that, according to their rules, they don't have to report that the outbreak ever happened.
0: Hmm. Well, then it, it seems like there is this gap here where there actually is a lot of information and could be a lot more information about how this is being spread. Things that could help keep a lot of people safe, but it just doesn't seem like there is an entity that has either the ability or the willingness to use that information to respond and to keep people safe.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I look at what happened at Agristar as kind of like a microcosm of America's coronavirus pandemic. I mean, in some ways you look at this outbreak where probably 150 people got sick. Um, Some people got severely ill, but there was not, you know, huge numbers of deaths that we know of and think, well, you know, that's just like one of dozens, hundreds of stories of workplaces with outbreaks. And like, yes, that's true. But also this story reveals so much about why we have these outbreaks, right? Like this is a place where there was not clear guidance. There was not rapid testing. There was not transparent sharing of information both between you know, state authorities and the plant, but also from the plant to its workers. And as a result of that, people didn't know how to protect themselves, they didn't know where the danger was, and the virus was given these opportunities to spread.
2: The sad thing about this virus is, you know, so much was known in China nine months ago about how this virus spread. But everywhere the virus has gone, people have had to relearn the same lessons. And uh, even though the information is already out there. So it's, it's. Uh, I think it's it's indicative of, of, of us as a society, what what slow learners, in fact, we are. And it's much of the problems we're dealing with today would probably not be so striking if people had you know, learn some of the lessons that had already been learned elsewhere without necessarily needing to experience it themselves.
1: You know, each additional case is kind of like a testament to our own failures to contain the virus. And, you know, these retrospective analyses that look back at outbreaks that have happened, they have the potential to guide future responses, right? They we could learn from them and make sure that next time the virus doesn't have as many opportunities to mutate, that You know, when you look at the genome of the virus, it won't tell a story of explosive spread. But we don't seem to be doing that, Dr. Kenny said. You know, we don't learn from our mistakes, and we certainly don't learn from science.
0: Sarah Kaplan is a science writer for The Post. Magdalena Toque-Garcia and her husband both recovered from the coronavirus. Sarah says that they're back at work, but they often feel weak and fatigued. Magdalena's mother was hospitalized with the virus for almost a week, and they think that one of their daughters was also probably sick. In Alamakee County, residents are largely returning to life as usual, attending church and singing without masks on and putting kids back into school. But now, cases in the state are creeping back up. Iowa has one of the highest numbers of cases per capita of any state in the country. And in September, the numbers in Allen-McKee County spiked to the same levels as in the spring. And now, one more thing. We've been asking you for your questions about voting. And we got this one from a listener named Marina. She wrote, I'm interested in exactly how campaigns get involved in challenging votes. I keep hearing about Trump having a team ready to go, but I'm not sure what that looks like. Does that only happen on a recount?
3: So the process for challenging
0: votes differs in every state. This is Ben Ginsberg.
3: I was a uh, practicing election law attorney on the Republican side for 38 years before retiring uh, earlier this year.
0: We asked Ben to walk us through the process of how campaigns go about challenging votes.
3: The most common challenge occurs to absentee ballots in their envelopes, where campaigns will challenge, usually on signature match, but sometimes on authentication the important thing to remember is that widespread challenges have to take place in individual precincts. There's not a broad-based national or even statewide challenge. So the army of lawyers, really both sides are deploying, will largely be in polling places, either as poll watchers or just to observe the process and note any irregularities what's not known is exactly uh what the trump campaign will do in polling places and whether there will be widespread challenges to individual voters in the polling places and then individual votes as they're Tabulated on election night and the following days in some states. One of the truisms about our systems of elections is that there are some 10,500 individual jurisdictions all with their own officials for administering the casting and counting of ballots. It should not be a surprise under that many jurisdictions that different interpretations of the same laws occur and that mistakes are made. That is a part of our process. Uh, The mistakes are caught and corrected, but it's really the strength of the system that we do provide local officials with the authority over their own elections.
0: That was lawyer Ben Ginsberg, and thank you to listener Marina for a great question. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you have a question about voting, you can ask us on Twitter or Facebook, or write us an email at, postreports at washpost.com. You can also find a link to the Washington Post guide to how to vote in our show notes or at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.